0: except by me to Martha he said I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me though he were dead yet shall he live and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this before we open God's word this morning let's bow our heads together go to the Lord in prayer Fathers, we come together this morning. We come to recognize your authority in our life. Come to recognize that your word is the way in which you have determined that we should learn about you. And that it is through your word that we learn about who we are as well. That we are sinners, that we are corrupt, that we we're born spiritually dead, but we have spiritual life through faith alone in Christ alone. And by believing in him, and his substitutionary death on the cross, we have eternal life. Father, we recognize that this is part of your plan of salvation, determined from eternity past, and that this is working itself out in human history under your sovereign guidance and your sovereign will. Phrases and terms that are difficult for us to comprehend and understand And to attempt to probe their depths is just uh, extremely difficult, if not impossible, for finite beings. But this morning, as we look at these important uh, doctrines, these important teachings and words that are found in your word, we pray that you might help us to get a better understanding of what they mean and how they impact our own thinking. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 1, and we are going to do some review from last week, but also we're going to look at the beginning of uh, a very important teaching in Scripture, one that is controversial for many people, one that is argued about by numerous theologians, seminary students, and sheep in the pew, and that is the sovereign will of God. And so we look at our passage just one more time to get us that overview contextually in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the first of three sections in this opening uh, section in Ephesians. It goes from verse 3 down to verse 14. And in these three sections, we look at first the Father, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit, as each is praised in turn for their role in this plan of God. And so we have to remember that in these first six verses that we're focusing on God the Father. He's blessed us. He that is God the Father is the source of those blessings. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing In the heavenly places in Christ, those blessings are positional. That's the term that we use in theology in relation to our legal relationship to God by being placed in Christ at the instant of our salvation, baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit, whereby we are identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, something we concluded with last time. Understanding this concept of being in Christ is foundational to understanding all that we have as believers in this dispensation and understanding this epistle. We're then told just as, which should be translated as, since he appointed us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and and without blame before him in love, either by means of being foreordained, as we'll see, or because we were foreordained to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So, we are still working our way through one five. I want to go back and just remind us of the context this is so difficult for a lot of people. I've been pleased to get a lot of positive response from folks as we have gone through this this study the last few weeks clarifying uh, these these verses and what these terms mean and so, I translated ephesians one four since he appointed us. In him, that is, we're the choice ones. It's really important to understand that. That word translated appoint has to do with, with appointing somebody for a particular purpose. You can't just isolate the appointment, which involves a selection, but it's an appointment. The word appointment brings to the foreground the idea that it's for a purpose. It's not for salvation. That's not the con- That's not the context here. He appointed us in him, that is, Those who are in Christ, I've used the analogy of an an address. Those who live at the address of the church have an appointment to a specific purpose, and that's related to to sanctification, being set apart unto God, uh, that is being holy and also without blame. That is our experiential growth and maturity. This occurred before the foundation of the world and that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, by means of love. Love is integral to the believer's spiritual life and spiritual walk. Now, that concept of being choice, I want to remind you again that the clearest illustration is the parable where Jesus is talking about those who are invited to the wedding supper in Matthew chapter 22. those who are invited, it's a universal invitation uh, that goes out, and it is up to those who receive the invitation whether they're going to come to this wedding feast. And they don't come because they choose not to come. The only people making choices in this uh, parable are are those who receive the invitation. And at the end, it's translated famously. We hear it quoted many times. Many are called, but if you are chosen. But the implication of that is a view that God is the one doing the choosing. But again, the only ones making a choice in that parable are the individuals receiving the call. The word that's translated uh, chosen is actually should be translated as choice because what makes them uh, uh, choice is their uh, wearing of the wedding garments, which is, by analogy, our, imp- our imputed righteousness from Christ as seen in Isaiah 61.10, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. We don't cause that the means of our salvation is faith in Christ, which is non-meritorious. The merit is in Christ. We don't clothe ourselves with righteousness. When we accept the free gift of Jesus Christ, he clothes us with righteousness. And the purpose is our spiritual growth. And that's in, based on what we have positionally in Christ. This is going to go all the way through uh, our whole study of Ephesians. And in Ephesians, let's go back to 1 4. Since he appointed us, that's the main verb. He appointed us in him, and then we have a participle at the beginning of 1 5. Typically, it's translated uh, simply as um, having predestined us. Uh, the ing in the New King James there indicates a recognition that it's an adverbial participle, but we lose its connection and meaning uh, because it is in the next verse from the main verb. And he chose us, and that's an aorist tense, which means past tense, but the participle is also aorist tense, which can mean it precedes the action of the appointing or it comes at the same time. Now it's probably, I think, a, it's difficult. You read, you read different scholars and they all sort of juggle with this because there's nothing objective to base, base your decision on in terms of an ending or something like that in the Greek. It can either be means, which is what I think, he appointed us by preordaining us to adoption as sons. So the, the appointment is to be, is to be holy and blameless in, in Christ. And it's done by preordaining us, and if you translate it as means, it's, it happens at the same time as the appointing. Now, it could be cause. He appointed us because we were preordained, and that would work too, that that would indicate that God has set a destiny or a a a task for us ahead of time. That's what ordination is. Going back to the ordination of a pastor, you are setting them apart and recognizing they've been uh, they they've been uh, provided by God with the gift of pastor teacher for a role. It is not a they're not being predestined to be a pastor. They are being recognized as a pastor and with a mission, and that's the idea. They're being given a mission, so. If it's cause that has the idea because we were preordained to adoption as sons. So that would indicate that it pre, this preceded the appointment. The first, and, and again, I want to point out that neither adoption as sons nor that we should be homeless and blameless have to do with, with our eternal destiny. This is not a passage related to selecting those who will be saved and not selecting others. It relates to our, uh, our our salvation. So we have, as I've gone through this, the um, three stages of our salvation. Phase one is justification, where we're freed from the penalty of sin. And this simply means that at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we're justified. We receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and we're declared to be just. At the same time, we're regenerated and we become a new creature in Christ. We enter into this new life. That new life, therefore, has to be nourished. And that is the second phase, which is our spiritual life or our spiritual growth, where we Uh, learn to apply the Word of God to our life and experience some measure of freedom from the power of the sin nature. And then the third phase is when we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord in heaven. So as we look at our passage going back to the way I have uh, translated this, It is by preordaining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself. Now, that's the New King James, and I left it that way to make this point. In the the Greek, it says, to him. So is it to himself or to him? And if it's him, who's the him? The him is the father. We can demonstrate that because this is all about the Father in these in these verses from three to six. We are adopted by him that also relates to the Father Son, analogy, in understanding adoption. He is our Father, so we are not uh, adopted as sons through Jesus Christ unto Jesus, which the himself suggests for some, but he preordained us, that is God the Father preordained us to adoption as sons through Jesus. He is the means. Uh, it is, salvation is always spoken of in terms of means and not causation. Faith in Jesus is the He is the means to salvation. It is uh, the Father's plan that is the ultimate cause of our salvation. But we receive Salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, so the hymn, I think, is a better translation, and we are uh, adopted as sons through Him. so we talked about adoption last time. I want to review it briefly for those who may not have been here last time it 's good review it 's important to understand this for all all of us, and I want to add a few. Uh, new things to it. First of all, I said that adoption is used in the New Testament as an illustration by analogy of our new of the new position of a church age believer in his relationship to God. This elevates us above any other believer in any other dispensation. In the Old Testament, Israel is corporately adopted by God, but not individually. No church, no believer in the Old Testament in the dispensation of the patriarchs or the dispensation of the law were ever adopted individually into God's family. So we have a truly unique position and privilege as sons and heirs. The background for this is to understand the cultural dynamics, and that is that the role of adoption is to invest a non-biological son with the privileges and responsibilities of an adult son and that is the core idea that you have in the analogy that's what Paul is speaking to in describing our uh, church age believer there are <clears throat> the the word that is used here in the greek hyathasia is found in Romans 8:15 and 23. Romans 9, 4 in relation to the Israel had received adoption, so that doesn't relate to the church-age believer. Galatians 4, 5, and Ephesians 1, 5. Now, here's an important thing I don't think I've seen anybody bring out. And that is that in each of these other passages that speak of adoption, they're all embedded in sanctification context, spiritual life context. They're all embedded in spiritual growth context, and uh, they're. Not, in other words, uh, this isn't talking about um, something that that is related to some sort of predestination. It is it, it, that's not, that, that's related to phase one. Phase one, we we receive the position of adoption, but we live it out. We need to develop it in terms of our spiritual life. The emphasis there is its significance for how we live on a day-to-day basis. So under point four, to understand the analogy, we have to understand that that there's there's no such thing as adoption in the Old Testament. There's there's a there's sort of a form that you might recognize with um, some of the Old Testament saints are practicing something analogous to adoption, but there's no Hebrew word for adoption. So we have such things as as Abraham. Uh, seeing Eliezer as his heir, we also have Laban uh, designating Jacob as his heir. Uh, we have a couple of other examples with uh, Mordecai taking on uh, the responsibility as a parent for for Esther but but this does not indicate uh, or, or is not ever expressed in a specific term that is in the Hebrew that means uh, adoption Now. This relates to key words that are used in the New Testament. This is always a fascinating study, and I'm not getting us bogged down in this. But we have these different terms. A brephos is a term that refers to an infant. Sometimes, like John the Baptist, it's an infant in the womb. But this is talking about a baby or brand-new-born baby. Then a technon, this word goes with the, uh, from infancy to adulthood, Quios refers to an adult son, and napios refers to an older child, and sometimes it's used in sort of a sarcastic uh, way to describe older children or adults acting like children. You know, it's like when you're on an airplane, you're flying southwest because they get a little freedom to be humorous at times. And they say if you are flying with, you know, when they they talk about the oxygen mask dropping down, and they say if you are flying with a child or someone acting like a child, (laughs) that would be napiath. Now, what's interesting here is the word hoithesia relates to You're adopted legally as an adult son, though our experience may be that of a brephos or it may be that of a technon. In other words, we have a legal position of being an adult son, and yet experientially in our spiritual life we're immature. The focus is that we need to act like who we are. Our identity is this uh, adult son. An adult son is a technical term. It's not a uh, some sort of uh, denigration of women. It's not some sort of sexist term, but the adult son in that culture is the one who has all of the privileges and all of the responsibilities. And so that's the focal point of this analogy. The sixth thing is that and this is where we, we see some uh, interesting parallels with Christian experience, is at an adoption ceremony, if the one being adopted into the family has living parents, then there is a ceremony that takes place where that adult son goes through a couple of two steps in the process of being becoming adopted by someone else. The first thing that has to happen is he has to be released from the uh, legal relationship and the authority of his biological father. So he has been reared in one home, and we have to understand that in, in Roman culture, The authority of the father was absolute. He could even determine the need for a child to die. Okay, he, he determined everything. There was, there was no wiggle room for a child to get out from under that, that authority. It was legal and actual. So if you're going to be moved from one family to another, the first thing that has to happen is that that initial Position that legal position has to be changed. And so this would take place in a ceremony uh, th- which occurred three times where his natural father would sell him to the adopting father. So there is a price that is being paid to move the son from his original family to the new family. The term that is used is redemption. Okay, this relates to what we'll get into when we get down to verse seven that uh, in him we have redemption that is the payment of this this purchase price, and so the new father pays a redemption price. the son that is being adopted is being sold by his natural father as a as a slave, and then this happened three times in order to make sure they truly wish to go through with the process and to complete that process. So it would happen one time, and then the adopting father would release him, and then it would happen a second time, and then he's released. And then the third time, uh, with the third sale, he comes back, and he is now completely freed from his natural father. Now, One of the things that comes to bear here is we are born spiritually dead, but we are of our father, Jesus said to the Pharisees. We are of our father, the devil. So Jesus pays pays a redemption price. He's not paying it to the devil. That was an early church history error. Uh, But he pays a redemption price so that we are legally transferred from the family of, of Satan of our father, the devil, to a new family, the family of God, the royal family of God. So this it's a great analogy that we have been bought with a price, and so now the one who exercises absolute authority over us is God the Father, whereas before the one who exercised absolute authority over us was was Satan, was the devil. So we're transferred completely into a new family, and with that legal transaction and our new position, we're given all the rights and privileges of an adult son. That's what would happen in the, in the Roman system is the adopted son is now viewed as the natural son, and this is done for the purpose of, of, of creating an heir for the preservation of the family of the adopting, uh, of the adopting father. So I want you to look down to verse 11. In him, in Christ, also we, that is we who are in Christ, have obtained an inheritance. And then look down to verse 14. Who is, talking about the Holy Spirit, who's mentioned at the end of verse 13, the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So we have inheritance related to the role of the Spirit. We have inheritance related to the role of God the Son. And this goes back to the action of adoption that is performed by God the Father back in the first section related to God the Father. So this whole thing comes together in a a remarkable way and this this idea of inheritance is so critical for us to understand as a funda- fundamental motivator in the spiritual life to recognize first of all who we are in Christ as an adult heir and secondly to recognize that there are there's more than one inheritance and so Uh, there's different dimensions there, and I'll come back to that in just a second, which is what we wrapped up with kind of last time. So in in the book of Galatians, Paul uses the child's pedagogue to illustrate the history of salvation uh, in relation to Israel to the law so that now we are, as an adult child, freed from a pedagogue, which is we're freed from the law. The law, the Mosaic law, no longer has authority over us because we have been transferred uh, into this new position as an adult son. The Ephesians context puts the emphasis on the believer's new position as an adult son, and that's significance for our inheritance and receiving that inheritance. Uh, The ninth point I looked at last time briefly, as I mentioned already, is that this takes place at the instant of salvation when we're baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. This never happened before in history. At no time prior to Pentecost in A.D. 33 was anybody baptized. Baptism by the Holy Spirit is identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Impossible for that to have happened. Uh, any earlier but you will read you will hear some reformed pastors and theologians talk about this it's a blurring of the distinction between israel and the church which is the second most significant aspect and defining characteristic of dispensationalism that we must maintain that distinction between israel and the church and the thing that marks off the beginning of the church is the baptism by the holy spirit that occurs in acts in Acts chapter two, so at that instant, this was point ten, we enter into union with Christ and we become adult sons positionally, but its purpose is to uh, is to challenge us with our growth, spiritual growth in phase two, with a view to our inheritance in phase three. So back to our chart, we have these eternal realities and temporal realities. We are, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5, we are sons of light. So he says, you are sons of light. Walk, therefore, in light. That shows the distinction between the position and the experience. We can be positionally children of light but not live it. We live and we walk in darkness. John talks about this in the first chapter of John. We are to walk in the light. So there's that position that we have. We are children of light uh, by virtue of being in Christ in the baptism by the Holy Spirit. We have these uh, positional realities. We're justified. We're regenerated. We are adopted. That's what we're looking at. And we become heirs of God. The experience has to do with our walk. We're either walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, or we are outside walking according to the sin nature. So that brought us to the 11th point because we're in union with Christ. We become heirs of God, but not joint heirs with Christ. That's a second category of inheritance. And I went to Romans eight sixteen and 17. I'm reviewing all this because when we get into inheritance, when we get down to verse, uh, verse 11 and then to verse 14, we have to understand the, the, these two aspects. So the way it's translated... In verse 17, first of all, verse 16 says that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Everybody's a believer in Christ, is a child of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The way it's punctuated here, there's no comma between heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And therefore, they're viewed as synonymous but the problem is the last clause is conditional, and the condition is suffering with Christ. So if we suffer with Christ, if that's necessary to be an heir of God and joint heir with Christ, then that becomes a condition of salvation as well. This is a problem. But, it, but it's punctuated with those commas, and they shouldn't be the way they are normally translated. And I use the illustration that I've used for years. A woman without her, man is nothing. And we can punctuate it. A woman, comma, without her, man is nothing. That indicates that uh, man is nothing unless he has a wife. Or we can only put one comma in there. A woman without her, man, is nothing. And in this case, it's saying that a woman is nothing unless she's married okay? Two completely different thoughts based on where the comma is. And so when we come to Romans eight seventeen, if we repunctuate it, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, comma, that's the first category that's true for every single believer, and then joint heirs, with Christ, if we suffer with Him. That relates to spiritual growth, sanctification, leading to inheritance and rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So, this is a foundation for understanding what will be said later as we go uh, through our passage. So, verse 5 says, having, indicating, um, uh, that, that this is the New King James. Uh, having preordained us or by means of preordaining us to adoption as sons uh, by Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ to him. That's how it should be translated, according to the good pleasure of his will. And this is the next part that we have to deal with here. And it goes back to, if you remember, when I used the illustration of the jigsaw puzzle, finding those pieces that outline the the borders of a puzzle. And that we talked about foreknowledge, we talked about the words usually translated election and what, and predestination. And then the bottom one I had was the will of God. Well, this is where we get into talking about uh, the will of God. And this is, this can be a difficult, difficult topic for many people because what happens is so many people bring preconceived ideas to the text out of from various reasons it could be a philosophical background it could be because you've uh, always heard a certain explanation but we have to look at what the text says we uh, one of the big problems is that when you get into this discussion of free will and determinism as it's stated in philosophy or the sovereignty of God versus the will of man, the freedom of man, as it's articulated in Christianity, you can barely read anything on that topic from a Christian perspective without realizing that so much of what somebody says about it is going to be defined by philosophical constructs that don't come from an exegetical foundation in, in the scripture. And so they import too much into, into the context. So the first word that we see, according to the good pleasure of his will, is the Greek word eurykia, uh, which has to do with, according to his good will, his good pleasure, or his satisfaction. And this indicates the fact that, that, uh, first of all, it's according to, so that sets the standard for God's plan of salvation that's been outlined so far in verses 4 and 5, related to his uh, appointment of us in him uh, by means of being preordained to the adoption of sons. This is according to the satisfaction of his will. Some even say it is the, the pleasure of his will because that E.U. prefix on Eudachea indicates something that is good or pleasing. God is satisfied with his plan, in other words. He's pleased with his plan. Why? Because it conforms ultimately to his righteousness and his, his justice. And it relates to his will. This is where we get into some sticky things to have to think through. The word will simply describes will or desire. It does not necessarily define a hard and fast causation of every minutia in the universe. And this is what happens as we get into, uh, into this this particular issue there are basically, as I've summarized it here, I think three views that we run into uh, generally in in um, trying to handle this idea of freedom and determinism. The first is what I'll identify as impersonal fatalism, where we think that everything is already determined in life, everything is determined, everything will be what it will be as... As the song goes, "Kay, sera, sera, what will be will be. It's just pure fatalism. Whatever happens in our life, it was just fated to be that way by some impersonal force or forces. And there's nothing that we can do about it. And in this view, any, um, any appearance or sense of making a free choice is simply a facade or a deception. We're not really making free choices. It was every detail, every decision, every thought is determined from eternity past. We're getting into some new forms of this in uh, modern times as a result of various studies with DNA and genetics, because in, in secular thought today, there's no such... Thing as a soul, there's no such thing as a spirit, there's no such thing as an immaterial part of man. Everything is material, everything is determined by DNA, everything is determined by various uh, chemical processes, and that man has no such thing as free will whatsoever. This is just uh, pure fatalism. Then we have a second view, which I, I'm calling personal determinism. Personal determinism, and this would incorporate certain Christian views or other theological views, such as Islam, where you have a personal deity, but he is still determining every thing that happens. He's determining all the minutia that happens in the world. And the idea that comes along from this is that if God is not personally determining every everything that happens, every minute thing that happens then God can't guarantee what will happen in the future. He can't know with certainty what will happen in the future. That's what goes to a uh, heresy that developed in the early twenty first century called open theism, uh, and it basically says god can 't really be sovereign he can 't really rule over his creation or bring about his desired ends if he can 't control every detail. My contention is that 's a limited view of of, of sovereignty. That's not a biblical view of of sovereignty, and we'll have to get into uh, further discussions about sovereignty as we go through this. The third view is the view that I think is correct, and that is that, that ultimately we have the personal oversight of everything in the universe. It's a personal God who is overseeing everything that happens. He can in his determination he has allowed a measure of freedom and individual responsibilities to his creatures. He does not give his creatures pure autonomy. Okay? That's a, that's a mistake that and that that is a sort a caricature sometimes that ca- Calvinists will accuse those who don't agree with them of is that you you believe in total autonomy. There is, we, we must recognize that the scriptures do not teach total autonomy or absolute freedom for man. We are free with regard to our choice of whether we will accept the invitation to salvation or not. We are free with respect to our decisions as to whether we are going to live the Christian life and obey God or not. But we cannot guarantee results, and we're not free to make just any choice in the world that we wish to make. And there are times when God in his sovereignty overrides our decision. I can't tell you how many Christians I know who usually they don't have a whole lot of financial resources, and they believe, and I think in some cases sincerely, that if they were to win the lottery, they would probably give it all to different Christian ministries, which is what probably I think that that's why God's never going to let them win the lottery is because that would then take away from those Christian organizations the opportunity to trust God on a day-by-day basis to provide their needs. And so God says, because I know that that's what you would do, I'm going to limit your your options and you're never going to uh, be able to fulfill that. But God, I think, credits us for that desire and that will. But with this view, we have God... Limiting willfully limiting his sovereignty. He could override everything if he wanted to, but he chooses not to do that in order to permit his creatures to make wrong or sinful choices for a variety of purposes. We can go into some of those purposes. Some relate to salvation. Some relate to sanctification. Some relate to teaching us various things. But God gives us that freedom so that it's not just that sovereignty coexists with human freedom. Sovereignty oversees human freedom. It allows it in a limited way, but it oversees it so that God does not abdicate his control. It also recognizes that God's sovereignty is so great, so infinite, so beyond our comprehension that he is still able to control the chaos that comes as a result of human free choices. That no matter what we choose, God is still able to bring about his desired end without limiting our, our freedom or our, our, our liberty. And so he is able, therefore, to work in human history and bring about his pedagogical and judicial purposes. And Romans 8:28 makes this very clear, that all things work together for good. And in some um, uh, some other some text, it puts it, and he causes all things to work together for good. But either way, the implication is that God is the one who is able to work all things together for good. He's in control of those uh, autonomous decisions that are made in such a way that in the end result, he produces that which is uh, intrinsically and eternally good. So, Whenever we get into this, it just raises a lot of questions, and we're going to end with some of these questions today. Must God control every minute detail to bring about his intended result? One side said yes. If he can't control every detail, then he can't guarantee that it will bring about his intended result. A subcategory of that question is, must God control every detail in order to bring about his predictions? If God has foretold that certain things will happen in the future, how can he guarantee that if he doesn't control every detail leading up to that? Now, God may control most of the details leading up to that, but he does not override, he still does not override individual decisions with relation to salvation or their spiritual life. The mystery that's there is how God does it, and we can never comprehend that. It is far beyond our ability to do so. A second major question is, is life already so predetermined that our decisions are a farce? Many people believe that. Many people go into astrology. I know Christians who get into this. Well, they'll say that's just God's will, which is some way, you know, God's just already fatalistically determined what's going to happen and I'm stuck. Well, there can be an element of truth to it. It is God's will. That's his sovereign will. He's overridden your will. But we have to be careful with phrases like that that we don't unintentionally blame God or shift responsibility to God for our own bad decisions? And then a third question is, who is ultimately responsible for salvation, God or me? Now, some years ago, I was involved. I got cornered by two or three friends of mine, and they wanted to argue about some of these questions. And they said, well, do you? who do you believe is ultimately in control, God or man? I said, God. But they're coming from a Calvinistic perspective, and their view is that, that if, you say, if you say it's God, then God has to control every detail. And so I said, but God allows human freedom within the framework of his plan, and he will bring about his ends. Now, I ran across a quote recently. In fact, one of the books we will have available uh, during the Chafer Conference next week is a book now in the third edition, which I think is the best he's done so far in terms of organizing and explaining things. It's a book I have here. It's called Beyond Calvinism and Arminianism by Gordon Olson. And he has various endorsements on the back of his book from a range of theologians, but one endorsement that stands out is by an extremely uh, Calvinistic dispensational theologian by the name of John Walbert. Some of you may not know who Dr. Walvert is. He was the second president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He was ordained as a Presbyterian. Like any good Presbyterian, he baptized his children as infants, uh, yet he was a strong dispensationalist. And if you read his theology as well as that of Lewis Berry Chafer, you will discover that they were uh, somewhere between three- and four-point Calvinist. And in his endorsement, this is what Dr. Walvard said. He said, In God's plan, some people will be saved and some would be lost, but on the basis of their own choices. God did not condemn them himself. That is a profound statement, that ultimately we determine our eternal destiny, that God is also involved in that, and that's the mystery of of the whole whole conundrum. So we are condemned. Why in John 3.18? We're condemned because we do not believe. And belief is an operation of our will, of our decision. Do we believe the gospel or not? He who does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God is condemned already. We're born spiritually dead, but even that concept of spiritually dead is not what the Calvinist wants to put forth, which means totally incapable of doing anything, including belief. And, um, and the analogies they use just don't do that. We'll get into those issues as we f- further develop this next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And Father, it's encouraging to understand that, that to some degree you've given us responsibility, responsibility to determine our eternal destiny, responsibility to determine what we will do with your truth in our life. We pray for those who are listening today that they might recognize that their eternal destiny, if they've never trusted in Christ as Savior, is determined by them. It's determined by their response to the gospel to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be saved. God is not going to override that volition. And for each of us here who are believers, that we have decisions to make each day, responsibilities each day, whether we will serve you and apply your word or whether we will engage in living our life on our own terms. Those are real choices with real consequences in time. We thank you that many times you override our decisions, many times in your grace, you prevent us from experiencing all that we uh, truly deserve as a result of our sinful decisions, and that we do not always experience the consequences of our foolish and, sin- and sinful decisions. And that is due to your grace. And that because your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways, we know that we can only understand these things to a limited degree, and beyond that, We just can't go. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study Ephesians and to understand our truly unique position in all of history as your adopted heirs and that we might use that reality to become joint heirs with Christ through our application of your word in our life. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.